Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. Since we're still a relatively new podcast, I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find the link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen. And if you like the program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find the show. This week, I'm joined by Stephen Barrows, Acton's Managing Director of Programs, and Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Program Outreach. Today, we'll discuss a really fascinating piece in Wired Magazine on exponential change. But first, I want to go to Washington, D.C. And last week, uh, President Joe Biden announced a mandate of sorts for COVID vaccines, uh, and that it's not really a, a mandate in the most draconian understanding of that. It is a regulatory effort by OSHA, you know, the people that produce those posters that you see in your workplace, no matter how large or small it is, but for workplaces over a hundred people. Uh, they're now either going to have either a requirement for people to have received the COVID vaccine or to do weekly testing for coronavirus. Uh, Steve, I want to go to you first. That the We talk a lot about in, incentives mattering here, and there seems to be an interesting set of incentives that circulate all around this. And we'll, we'll get to, you know, there'll be questions about the constitutionality of this. Um, there seems to be some disagreement amongst people that I think are smart and I respect out there as to whether or not the Supreme Court would ultimately rule us to be unconstitutional. I, I think from my reading of it, I tend to lean towards the deference to regulatory powers is a lot larger than I might prefer it to be. So it may end up standing but there are a lot of interesting incentive questions circulating around this, not only for incentives for people to either get a vaccine or not get a vaccine, but also for businesses. So just consider for a moment, if you're a business of like 95 employees or so and you're looking to grow, do you take on the burden that will be either policing that everyone has a vaccine for the coronavirus or testing on a weekly basis, or do you just keep it at that 99-person cap and not go over it to avoid all of this? You know, it's funny that, that uh, these always come back to these arbitrary numbers, right? I mean, so why a hundred? Why why businesses of a hundred people? And of course, you know, businesses are going to take a look at that, and it's going to alter their reflection on whether or not they want to expand or not, or how they might uh, go about responding. And I think the thing that's kind of startling is that you have an individual who's making a mandate at the federal level to apply across an entire country, not knowing possibly what could be happening in individual particular businesses and circumstances, and and that's where these decisions ought to be made. You know, the end of it, who knows whether or not a, a business has 100 individuals and all of them are working remotely, right? Or whether or not they're all working on site in very close quarters and in, in a high risk environment or what have you, where you could have individuals, if they're knocked off the assembly line, suddenly the business shuts down. Well, individual businesses need to be taking a look in conversation with their employees about what makes sense for their particular business. And so, no doubt, the incentive structure would be altered by this mandate. And as you mentioned, I'm sure there are people going to be looking at this from a constitutional standpoint. Standpoint, but certainly from an economic standpoint, to make some sweeping judgment on mandatory vaccines for all businesses of a certain number uh, just makes no economic sense. 
Yeah, Steve raises an interesting point there that the you could have a, a larger scale business where people are largely working remote. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of when I lived in Chicago, you started to see how floors of buildings were emptying out where a bank might have five floors of a tower in downtown Chicago that's now down to one or two that they have enough people for. So there's not a lot of people working in close proximity. They're all spread out remotely because they can do their job remotely. But a business of 50 people that may have people in intimately working together, well, if the concern is protecting people from COVID, it would seem to make more sense that they're the ones mandated to have this vaccine requirement, not the one expansively spread out and yeah, people imagine, most working remotely. Imagine a large landscaping business, right? Or snow plowing business where the workers are not in close proximity on their ordinary day-to-day activities. It just is, is one size clearly doesn't fit all when it comes to businesses and the nature of the business. So- yeah, just it, it. I wonder about, again, with the talking about incentives, but also the way that people react to these things, if it is going to, I, I think it is a net good to want to get people to get the coronavirus vaccine. Mm-hmm. Is this just going to produce that kind of, you know, there's a mandate coming from on high. So rather than moving people marginally over, you're going to create a even stronger resistance to people doing it because of the way that it's being done. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that, too, because you can I know a lot of people that are pro vaccine, pro thinking through the science and trying to get uh, um, the best kind of medical help in the future, you know, and, and, and protecting the population, but they're anti-mandate and that the way that the government is handling it, you can, um, it's, it's putting odd groups at tension with one another and it, it's, how will this actually be enforced? How will, what kind of reporting pr- protocols will there be? Um, and, and it, it, I think it largely is a, it could be a slippery slope to different kinds of, uh, uh, Overreach in in ways that are uh, technologically centered. In other words, how what kind of systems will be put in place where people will they have to log in in the computer and let people know or the, scan their phones that and, and what kind of protocols will be put into place in each of these businesses to man to make sure the mandate is covered. Yeah, well, right? the, the slippery slope part of it is interesting. So I, I listened to a conversation. We talked a bit about this. Um, recently on Act and Unwind of what's going on in Australia. Oh, yeah. And I listened to an interesting conversation on the Fifth Column podcast uh, over the weekend where they had Josh Sepps, who's a media personality, who responded to Connor Friedersdorf's piece in The Atlantic about what's going on in Australia. And two of the uh, two examples of the kind of point that I think you're raising, Dan, are, are at play in there, which is uh, in some areas of Australia, you have QR codes everywhere now. And like we've all seen the QR codes everywhere now, right? You know, you scan it to get your menu at a restaurant, which is one of the other COVID related things I don't think is ever going away. You also have QR codes that you kind of scan when you go into a bar or a restaurant and leave a bar or a restaurant. And the whole point of that is contact tracing. If they figure out that somebody who had been there, it had been infected and might be possibly spreading it, um, of course, you can see the possibility for abuse of all of that. The one that Connor raised most specifically was about an app that you would install on your phone. Now, Zepp's point was, to be clear, this is a voluntary thing Mm -hmm. that is attempting to avoid people having to do the two-week stay at the COVID hotel where you you quarantine – Instead, having them self-quarantine and the way that they would ensure that is installing this app where they might ping you, whoever's enforcing it, and you have 15 minutes to take a picture verifying that you are where you say that you are. But it's not hard at all to see like the 
how creepy <laughs> the implications of that could be not much further down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, the, the, the Chinese um, are perfecting this from a governmental angle, but if we, we can say um, it is voluntary, but the opportunity – um, if quickly they, they're, a case could be built, like this, this is so efficient, this is so that, – that the mandates could could follow very quickly for similar programs um, that aren't so voluntary. Yeah, I think one of the other interesting points in, in all of this to me is this interesting tick that we seem to have right now in our culture, which is assume that it is a good to get people vaccinated. Um, I think for all the reasons we've discussed, there are problems in a mandate approach to doing all of that because of the reaction that it might uh, induce. It seems to me that there's a large group of people now that rather than perhaps trying to come up with public policy regimes that would get people to do the right thing, even if they did it for the wrong reason, they would rather be righteous about this is the you know this is the right thing to do so we bring this very draconian uh, mandate in as a way to try to get it that they would rather feel righteous about the reasoning that they have for doing for something rather than trying to get people to do the right thing even if it's for the wrong reasons mm. Yeah, I think that there might be something to that. You know, when I think about what's happened with federal mandates in general, it once again goes against that principle of subsidiarity that we really emphasize here at the Acton Institute. I mean, on the one hand, we know, uh, you know, individual freedom. Uh, we're also social creatures. We're engaged with other individuals. Our behavior has impacts and spillover effects on other individuals. Uh, but so often when it comes to these kinds of policies that are put uh, imposed from the top down, it doesn't take into account what happens at the local level, what happens in local communities, what happens in that principle of subsidiarity where we allow individuals with the most relevant information to make these kinds of decisions in the, in the way that best to uh, assist their local communities. And the same thing holds true with businesses. So I, I think there is that concern that you, you've identified. I think it raises also the problem of another ongoing theme of our work here at Acton and that I've been banging on about constantly on this podcast is the undermining of faith in our institutions, mm -hmm. that the uh, Chris Steyerwalt at the Dispatch had a good piece about this is just another example in a long run of executive overreaches that hit, plays with this really odd perception we have of the presidency right now that uh, people elevate it beyond what its importance should be. I, I always write. I liked, uh, I think it's Steve Hayward who had said that we, it would help if we stopped mispronouncing the word that it should be president, not president, because the idea is that he's supposed to preside over the executive branch of government. But we've elevated it to this importance beyond all of that, mm. while at the same time watching someone representing that institution take actions that continues to undermine people's faith in the institution itself, that I think there are a lot of people who despite the underlying purpose of wanting people to get vaccinated, will look at a mandate and say, but this is not the way to do it. And as a result, you've continued to harm people's ongoing faith in a branch of our government that you would want people to have faith in. Right. And and if you look at uh, the social media aspects of this or the polarization in the civil – like it's hard to have a coherent discourse with somebody about this without just raw emotion on either side. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's not a – it's hard to have a mediated position 
because we're driven to the to the margins of polarization in um, I mean the school some of the school board meetings over the last week or two that you've seen and, and on on both sides again I, I would argue this is both sides so it's it's hard to say how do we think through this well decisions are coming really fast and uh, then mandates seem to be quite sweeping so you have the speed and then the sweep the scope of the of the engagement from the federal government it uh, it lends itself to people being really, really polarized, and it's hard to come through with some sort of reasoned um, judgment on what is what is wise, and and that's what I find somewhat troubling in the, in the whole affair. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a really good point that people, because of the way we've sorted so much of this conversation through partisan lens, through the need to uh, go into our camps, um, to be parts of political tribes, and uh, to, to reference Amy Chua there, that we – people seem to adopt positions that they might otherwise not just because they feel under – they feel their group is under attack. Um, and you, I think you see this in some of the – what I think are the bizarre inconsistencies having to do with certain policies here, because you you would think, right, that if you – the idea of the vaccine is that it's supposed to protect you personally – from COVID. So the people who don't want to take the vaccine, what logic would seem to suggest that they're the ones who would say, okay, I don't trust the vaccine. I don't want to get it. So you would take other precautions. You would, you know, you would adopt masking. Mm -hmm. But we have this weird position right now that we're all in where the people who don't want to take the vaccine are also the people who don't want to mask. And the people who are vaccinated, and generalizing, of course, but the people who are vaccinated are the ones who are wearing two masks instead. <laughs> and it seems completely illogical unless you're going to look at it through that tribal perspective that people are just filtering it through political priors rather than through any meaningful, uh, logical conversation. Right. I think that's a good way to, to summarize it. Dan, I want to go to our, our second topic for today, which is you found a very fascinating article in Wired, and why don't you go ahead and tee that up? Sure. Um, as you know, I love these topics, you know, media ecology and, and kind of what is the – in 2016, uh, the World Economic Forum argued that we're in the middle of, or the start of the fourth industrial revolution or the fourth digital revolution is what they call it. Um, and in, in 2016, this made a lot of uh, – Waves and and they argue that you know there are three reasons why today's industrial revolution represents not merely uh, an extension of the third, but an arrival of a fourth and distinct event. So the, the the industrial revolution in this case is different. They argue because it's exponential. The exponential growth is different than a linear growth, and uh, the World Economic Forum argued that it, it's because of the velocity, scope. And systems impact of this one is different. And so for the last five years, people have been thinking about this idea of exponential growth. Is it really different? Is it just the same kind of thing? Um, and, uh, you know, it's, the argument is that the, the technologies that we now have blur the lines between physical, digital, and biological sphere. I mean, is what we were just talking about. Right. The speed mm-hmm. of the ML. MRNA development and some of those the, the complexities that a lot of I mean the everyman doesn't understand. So the mistrust about what an MRNA vaccine is, people just don't even know. You hear what that, that is, those right? conversations, but th- this uh, this alters fundamentally your DNA, which is yeah, yeah. not it, that is not the science behind it. But you can't hardly fault people for you know 
mRNA is a new technology. It's, you know, it, it's been in development for a number of years. And the story of Moderna as a company is is fascinating in its own right. But you can't fault people for a suspicion of something that is difficult to understand yep. and that there's not been a lot of time for them to understand. Yeah, for a lot of people, I mean, it almost sounds like witchcraft. You know, like, right. it's like what is this? How does this work? They, they well, that, have no touch points. That is, that's a really great point that um, I can't remember who the quote is from, but like any technology sufficiently advanced yep. at some point is pretty much to people indistinguishable from magic. Right. For sure. For sure. And uh, and, and so uh, for about five years, people have been trying to end longer. But um, the last five years, because of the World Economic Forum's engagement with this exponential topic, people have been thinking about it. And Azim Azar has written a book called Exponential. It releases this month. Um, and he wrote, uh, there's an excerpt of it in Wired Magazine as of last week. And he, he kind of sets the the stage, a pretty provocative article. And that's why a lot of people like it or don't like, because it, it is so provocative. But that modern business is uh, growing. He uses multiple examples. Uh, he uses Amazon. He uses Kodak and and other and biological companies. That the idea of knowing the future, kind of a futurist position, that any business willing to survive has to think th- with exponential definitions in mind rather than linear. Um, he throws out the idea of any kind of innovation or traditioned innovation that happens linearly. And he said just the speed at which technological computing power is happening will affect all of the companies that kind of ru- rule our lives to some degree. Mm-hmm. I think he gets it early in the piece to uh, reference to Moore's Law, which I think yeah. is a, a good way to really understand this and one that I actually had a little understanding of coming into reading the article, that it's the uh, every 10 years, the cost of processing that can be done by a computer will decline by a factor of 100. Or the way that it had originally been relayed to me is that you the way you get advances in microprocessors is essentially it's a little bit, 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 and then an explosion of advancement. Um, kind of the, the Oscar Wilde quote on going bankrupt, right? You know, how did you, how did it happen uh, slowly and then all of a sudden? Yep. Uh, you get these huge advancements, and that's how we go from, you know, just recalling uh, as I was watching over the weekend the uh, FX series on uh, the Bill Clinton impeachment and remembering <laughs> what the 1990s were like. The home computer that we had had you know, less memory on it than a thumb drive that you could buy today, uh, that the computing power of the iPhone 11 that I'm holding in my yep. hand here is worlds beyond what the computing power of that first, um, you know, gateway computer that we had in the late 1990s. And being able to comprehend that kind of rapid growth is, I think, a strain on a lot of people's brains. Well, and, and it's the many different places, it, it, the speed at which this is in, in, some would say, infected or engaged so many different aspects of our lives. Medicine, education, um, tra- I mean, the, the whole, there's just an upheaval and uh, an uprooting of all kinds of business principles in all kinds of different spheres. So it's not just like the light bulb. It's it, it, it um, that happened over a century, if you will, um, for effects to take uh, for those things to take into effect. Um, if you look at the cell phone, right, the the smartphone that we have is 12, 13 years old, 
and think about how many ways, um, in fact, he argues in the paper that it is the development of the smartphone specifically for microcomputing power that will allow so many more um, of these changes to happen at an exponential speed. So it's thinking, it's hard, again, the complexity of thinking through the effects um, of, and from a business perspective or an economic perspective, Steve, it, it's interesting to think through whether this is creative destruction. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it, it almost sounds like creative fits. destruction, uh, uh, you know, on steroids. Like right? an atom bomb it, of yeah. destruction. It, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it is, uh, you know, on the one hand, when you think through that, at least from an economist standpoint, you think about then what it display, how, how, how new technology, especially an exponentially growing new technology, not only uh, complements labor, but it also displaces labor. And so I'm sure that to some degree, e- economists are, you know, they've grappled with this for a number of years, even when you had the linear change of technology and what we call, you know, skill biased technological change that, that you, you have this creative destruction process, the technological change ends up actually benefiting those who have skilled labor, skilled talent, as opposed to those who are unskilled. And so I think that that's one of the implications from an economic standpoint, if his premise is true, that we're starting to see this exponential growth in technology touching every sphere of business activity. The question then becomes, what does that mean for the typical worker? And how can those individuals adapt to the circumstances that are just, uh, you know, arising at a much, much more rapid rate? And he, he argues that the, the, it's the, the real crux of where things are changing is the cheapness of the computational power mm. of the chip. So uh, Moore's law does get, you know, every two years, the, ability, the size of a chip halves, you know, so it gets cut in half. And so you can get more and more data on a smaller and smaller chip. That's generally layman's terms. And, and so now, uh, and there's debate about how far that can go and how long it can sustain. But that Moore's law itself um, – if businesses and companies can have access to this massive amount of computational power, it, 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 there's a kind of – some people call it knowledge or there's a kind of data there that then people will then make decisions on. Yes. And that, that is unprecedented. And so that's the unprecedented piece. That's what makes it exponential. You know, there's an interesting thing that just to correspond to that this weekend in the Wall Street Journal. And for the life of me, I've forgotten the, the title of the article, but there was an article on Amazon and how okay. Amazon is taking this new computational data in their distribution centers and monitoring the movements of all of the individuals that are, you know, loading things onto platforms and working with the robotic instruments in their warehouses. And then they have all this information about just what's the average productivity of individuals. I mean, it's it's akin to what Ford did on the assembly line. Or and Taylor, making, Frederick or, Taylor. Exactly, Taylorism, Frederick Taylor. Yeah. Exactly, and movements and time and, and, and movement uh, studies. But it's, again, on steroids. And so the question then arises, well, what's happening? Are, are, are you creating a situation where the workers not only are becoming more productive, but also then, you know, there are, of course, concerns at, at Amazon uh, warehouses about individuals and being able to keep up with the pace of what the what the data is telling them they should be doing and setting metrics for those individuals. So it does create some very interesting both positives, right, but also then some individual downsides, just like any other kind of creative destruction activity would. And we'll, we'll find the, the Wall Street Journal piece as well as put a link to that and to the Wired piece in the show notes for the episode here. Steve, to what, to what you were saying about the... The, the economic impacts on, on the worker that could come from this, uh, thinking about it from a uh, both a sociocultural and a political perspective, we're still currently struggling to deal with the creative destruction that we have seen really 
I guess you could start the trajectory post World War II, mm-hmm. but like this is you know to the heart of uh, J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy, right? To these stories of places like in Appalachia, where these have been one industry towns that have hollowed out, and we really have yet to devise an effective way to deal with that. And there's some interest. There's a whole lot of interesting cultural questions that are going on there. People, the ability. With technology that we have now, to move has never been easier, but people right. are less mobile now than they've been in quite a while. And I, I wonder what the acceleration of all of this is going to do to all of those problems. If we're still struggling to deal with the impacts of this kind of creative destruction on a linear level, how are we going to be able to deal with the impacts of it on an exponential level, assuming that this kind of thing does continue? Yeah, I think that is, uh, you know, again, uh, his paper, it's it's a premise, right? And, and he, you know, I'm assuming in his book, he's going to provide a bunch of data that would support the, the premise that you're seeing this acceleration. You know, the whole process of creative destruction itself, you know, at the individual level, it creates, you know, damage for certain individuals who as, as they're displaced in the workforce. You know, one of the things I think about, if I used to live in the just off the Long Beach and LA Harbor in San Pedro, California, and you could just see these ships coming in and just the massive amount of, of Im- imports that are coming into this country. If you dial it back, you know, over a century ago, it wasn't automated machines and the box, right, that is being put on a shipping container and then put off on a railroad or, or a truck. It was instead cargo nets and raw labor power, right? Individuals pulling bags of bananas off the ship. Well, you know, there's a great book, by by the way, by Mark Levinson called The Box that talks about the development of the shipping container and just how it's revolutionized trade and globalism and globalization that has been essential. Well, in every case that that manifest itself in the in the in the shipyards and the docks and so forth you had massive amounts of displaced labor right where suddenly individuals who by their raw strength made use of their gifts and talents in that way but could we ever conceive going back right to an era when we had nets that were pulling off of individual cargo ships by individual men right it's, it, it's just mm-hmm. not going to happen so i think when we take a look and and it's kind of i guess makes us anxious to think about this exponential change if history demonstrates and continues what it's demonstrated in the past, there will be then manifestations of other means for individuals through this process to be able to find other kinds of work to do. Uh, of course, that doesn't uh, minimize the, the the individual suffering, and right? The, I think that's what makes it most provocative. Yes. This article, most prov- provocative, is because he's saying you can't think that way. It's a fundamental shift. It's a fundamental change. It's hard that that and and so again I know it's provocative in his thesis, but that is is exactly what he is driving at. Right, that it's fundamentally changed. It, it will not be like the past. You yes. know, uh, Carl Benedict Frey at Oxford has a book called The Technology Trap, and it's a brilliant historical mm-hmm. unwinding of the last few hundred years of industrial change. Um, and so, but again, he's saying this: if your business leaders, if you're thinking uh, about it in that way, you, you're already you've already lost. Mm. And so that's where it's the, the provocative piece of saying, how will business leaders think? And all the way through, I mean, he uh, 
He references it. the reason why it was important to us, I think, at Acton to even talk about this, not merely from the technological and business perspective, but he has a whole section on institutions mm, mm-hmm. and where, yeah. where the institutions of law, uh, you know, rule of law, the institu- I mean, he mentions the church. He mentions a lot of different pieces that this will trickle down to very quickly. Right. Yeah. Right. So you – I'm glad you went there because it, it reminded me of the – part of the thesis in Jonah Goldberg's last book. Um, that basically takes the idea of Schumpeterian creative destruction and says that you know, we've thought about this in an economic context as it applies to business, that a system of profit and loss gets lit rid of old and effective businesses as people innovate their ways forward. Um, but his argument is that those uh, the Schumpeterian process of creative destruction really impacts everything and its drive for efficiency. It will get rid of institutions that are important to the maintenance of a market system like we would favor. It erodes its own foundations in that liberal democratic capitalism, according to him, depends on certain virtues and values that it can't create and it can't replace if lost. And if we accept the the premise of this kind of exponential change, then we're up for an even greater challenge to those institutions. Again, to bring it back to my favorite topic mm-hmm. on this show is the erosion of trust within our institutions. For sure. Has partly begin, been because of the behavior of institutions themselves. But for the influences that have been playing on those institutions, if the pressure gets turned up, right, if it's like a, if it's like a sandblaster that has been aimed at our own institutions and in some cases purposefully aimed at our institutions, but at minimum by just the process, as I just discussed there, this is like, you know, going from it being a sandblaster to loading it up with rocks and firing it at those institutions. I don't know. Part of the problem is like, how do we even begin to think about what this might look like? Because to the point of his thesis, the change is so fast and without historical precedent, how do we even begin to process what it might look like? Yeah. And to use his own words, he says, um, if the primary cause of this exponential gap is our failure to predict the cadence of the exponential change, then the secondary cause of our is our consequent failure to adapt to it. And as the speed of change increases, our society remolds itself at a much slower pace, and our institutions have an inbuilt tendency towards incrementalism. And so it, right. he, he just argues that structures, social structures themselves are slow and, and, they, and they build differently. And, and if, if move fast and break things mm-hmm. is the new model of this in all different kinds of spheres, institutions will be piggybacked. They'll, they'll be leapfrogged. I mean, it, right. it will. Well, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the hour, right? Where uh, I think there's been a, a, a frustration by the executive branch to allow the legislative branch to do its job. And so there's just an issuing of immediately now executive orders, do this, do that, do this, mm-hmm. because our institutions really are structured for more deliberate incrementalism, as Dan describes. You know, one of the things that gives me hope, though, and I, I'll be interested to read his book when it's when it comes out here this month, but it strikes me that there are certain things that even in the midst, of, if his premise is true, that there's certain things about the human person, right, being the so-called ultimate resource, to use Julian Simon's uh, phrasing, uh, that can never be displaced. And so there will be sorts of activities that we could only then say to a human being, I need your assistance, I need your help to to accomplish Mm -hmm. certain tasks. And so um, 
you know, can, can we know what those things are going to be? No, um, but I, I'll be interested to hear him make that case that there are certain things that are fundamentally different going forward that that maybe make these those reliable, you know, things not not so reliable. Absolutely, yeah, having. Um Having the human ingenuity, I mean, and again, it, it's the balance. Again, we're back to that provocative thesis. He's just arguing that's not the way to think about it. Mm. And, and so that's what is so provocative because right. Carl Frey in, in, in his book, The Technology Trap, he, there's a great section on the Luddites and mm-hmm. how in 1811 through 1815-ish, um, you have the Luddite rebellions. And we, we use that term Luddite pretty nonchalantly now, but uh, and overwhelmingly took, pejoratively. Yeah, pejoratively. Yeah. But it, it took more men to put down that armed rebellion than Napoleon took to the war. Mm. And people don't know, don't remember that. I mean, it was a massive uh, military engagement. Wow. To, to, and so the Luddites, right? They were frustrated about their way of life. It, um, it, they realized the loom was a change to their fundamental way of life. And if you follow Taylorism, and if you look at all the laws that it, it took a decade or two for the laws to catch up to Frederick Taylor's engagement with how one shovels coal. <laughs> I mean, that that was what, you know, right. and, and, and the, those efficiency standards, um, the, I mean, Six Sigma, one of the, the key lean manufacturing dogmas is now on the way out and, and, and it's now pejorative. But for two decades, it looked like it was the way to do manufacturing. And what I think is provocative and, and I'm, I'm in tune to it and I, I think I'm a little more inclined to say, what are the futurists? How, how can we think and predict um, what is going to be happening? Because if the World Economic Forum is right, and I, I think they are more right than wrong, that it's the blending of these spheres that makes it more problematic. Mm. It's, it's, it's truncated. Instead of having a – we'll see 40 or 50-year effects of a thing. Right. It's now things can change to that same pace, but in two to four years. Right. So how does the legal – Ramification, you know, the, the legal structure keep up with it. How does the uh, just socio institutional like way he mentions wages and working conditions? Mm-hmm. And Carl Frey again in his book, he said, "Look, there's always change." And he's pro innovation. Carl Frey is in pro. He thinks uh, the future is going to be great. But he goes, what he's great at reminding as a his- economic historian is that there's always revolution accompanied mm-hmm. with these massive changes. And so if it's happening point. faster, right. that, that wh- how are we preparing for some of the dissonance? And it's, it's a little provocative to say revolution, but uh, those kinds of things. But that a revolution be, of sorts, right? Of sorts, I mean, for you, sure. You, in, in referencing the, the Luddites and that being an armed rebellion, you, you look at the state of civil society right now and you wonder about our ability to adapt to all of that. I mean, it, it was, we've talked some on this program, but in my line of work, particularly in digital media, you look at the way that people have uh, adapted or not adapted to a world of social media and that kind of communication. And he really gave lie to some of the techno-utopianism that we came into this millennium with, that the idea that we'll be able to connect with anybody from anywhere, and it's going to be wonderful. And it turned out we were able to connect with anybody from anywhere, but it wasn't really all that wonderful um, that the – I think Steve and I were talking about this in a different context uh, uh, last week, that 
we, we think this sense that, you know, familiarity is going to solve problems, right? Mm-hmm. That the, you know, you hear people talk about this in terms of like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that if they just understood each other better, then we wouldn't have that conflict. But, you know, Palestinians and Israelis understand each other really well. Um, Turks and Greeks understand each other really well. Turks and Guatemalans don't know the first thing about each other. And there aren't any wars there, incidentally. Um, But even pick a closer country and you get the same kind of dynamic. Our ability to wrap our brains around, and I think this is what's so fascinating to me about this, is even if you, you know, did your best to understand the pace at which change is taking place, the acceleration that he's talking about means that you can never quite keep up with it. And what I wonder about is the kind of social unrest that is going to come that we've seen historically. Right. There's precedent for. And it seems that we are not at this moment in time uh, well suited to handle those kinds of social unrest situations that if we had stronger institutions, uh, we might, as a result, be able to handle it better. But I think perhaps, as I've, I mentioned numerous times, Yuval Levin's work on institutions, there was a reason that his book on it was entitled A Time to Build, right? And not right. A Time to Rebuild. And that is to perhaps through the process of creative destruction, understand which institutions haven't been serving us as well as they should. Institutions are supposed to have a purpose. People are supposed to come together for the purpose of accomplishing something and to be made better through the process of accomplishing something. And so many of our institutions, as Yuval himself says, you know, there's supposed to be a fundamental difference between Brown University and the New York Times. Yeah. They're supposed to do different things. But functionally right now, they both exist for the same reason. They're platforms on which people can stand and yell about oppression. Mm-hmm. That we need to build actively institutions that help us handle these issues, as well as engage in some of the rebuilding, which is revitalization, I would argue, I assume you would agree, of the church and the importance of the church through all of this as a through line to understand human anthropology, which is, I think, important to, for people to have a better understanding of as we attempt to grapple with all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if we if you just quiet down just a moment and take a to look and see what's happening. I mean, what's happening in Hong Kong is a certain kind of reaction. It's a governmental reaction to these kinds of things. But what 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 would a free market more? What would a more Western response look like? Well, I think we we've lived in it in the last couple of years. I mean, COVID has just exacerbated certain tensions that were already there. But I, I think we're uh, uh, it's hard to see the water you're swimming in. You yes, know, some people are, and, and so I think we are. It takes a certain kind of foresight. I think that's what he whether his it proves ultimately true or not. You know, I mean it it might. It, this provocative thesis might not uh, work itself out 100 percent, but I think what he's pushing us to is as business leaders, religious leaders, leaders of institutions, that if, if we're not listening as best we can. I mean, Neil Postman had his famous six questions to interrogate any new technology. Mm-hmm. That was famous in the – he made mm-hmm. that in the 80s, right? Well, on the Ezra Klein show uh, just several weeks ago, Michael Sakasis, who's a media ecologist, thinks about a lot of these media topics. Um, 
was interviewed there, and he has a, he updated it to 41 questions to ask technology. But it, but it, 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 it's those people who are asking and trying to slow it slow down. Let's think about what are the costs. Who stands to benefit from these technology? You know, it, there's some questions that just the speed at which these are happening are they're just very hard to ask. Right. But if we don't, I think there is historical precedent, and again, it's truncated now even worse that if there aren't people somewhat the brakes mm-hmm. to the gas of innovation or the gas of, you know, let's uh, do this kind of exponential or have this exponential growth. But there have to be people that think through these ethically, legal and moral right. implications of, of what could come. Well, I think as we try to bring it to a close here, I mean, the, it gets to an interesting question um, that we seem to be debating around the edges of right now is that the idea is, is, is growth and advancement for the sake of growth and advancement good? Good, yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot more that uh, will be discussed on that in the future, but let's call it a wrap here. Uh, thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link for where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind. Uh, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Again, we're still relatively new, so please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews if you would, so that more people can find this program. From the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.